Welcome to Discover Healthier. Everything you need to know about health brought to you by Discovery Health. I'm Azania Musaka. You can join the conversation as we explore some of the most pressing matters in the healthcare environment today. A wide variety of topics and specialist guests will empower you to care for your health now and in the future. Have you ever felt sad or down? Maybe found it hard to concentrate or had excessive fear or worry? Ever had mood changes with highs or lows or significant tiredness and maybe even withdrawn from friends? Have you ever felt unable to cope with daily problems and stress or turned to substance abuse to get through a day? If you have concerns about your mental health, you're not alone. How do you know when it's time to reach out for help? Who better to explain all we need to know about mental illness and its impact on you and me than Cassie Chambers, Operations Director at the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, also known as SADAG, and Dr. Nolutando Nemachwerani, the head of the Center for Clinical Excellence at Discovery Health. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me on this very important conversation. But Dr. Nolu, mental health problems are the result of a very complex interplay between biological, uh, physiological, social and environmental factors. Just to kick us off, can you explain the spectrum of mental illness? So when we talk about mental illness, illness, most people always assume that it is a single disease. We know that if we look at children, for example, they are there's a spectrum of conditions that children may suffer from bucketed in the broader discipline of mental health. And I think when we talk about those conditions that are seen in kids, we talk about, you know, behavioral disease, we talk about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, we talk about autism disorder, and I mean, there are other kids who are also presenting with depressive symptoms and um, are suicidal. But I think for me, um, it's important also to understand that even when we talk about mental health, we're talking about a point where you can be under a a lot of pressure, but not have illness. Mm -hmm. So you may not necessarily be presenting with disease, but you may have high stress levels where you may come out of it. But once that is sustained, then you may be diagnosed. So that's the spectrum also just of mental health. When you talk about mental health illness, so I've described what you can see in kids, but in adults, we also see various conditions in the disease spectrum, whereas on the other end, you can still function and your mental health still be preserved, whereas you can still also get into a point where you are diagnosed with conditions like anxiety, depression, and then some other conditions that fall under mental illness like personality disorders and uh, psychotic disorders as mm. well. So it's quite a broad spectrum of disease, but also even the spectrum between being well and you know moving into the disease space is also very important for us to highlight. So Cassie, can you tell us about SADAG and the work that you do there, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group? So SADAG is a registered NGO. We're a charity group. We've been around for 26 years, really just creating as much awareness as possible around mental illness. Mm. Uh, We run a call center with over 22 helplines. We provide free telephonic counseling to people throughout the country who are anxious, they have depression, they've been through trauma. We cover all mental health issues and just really provide people with help over the phone as well as information, resources, referrals, action plan. 
I think when we're looking at the kind of work that we've done over the last 26 years is a lot of it is about creating awareness and destigmatizing the scary thing that we all feel about mental illness. We've worked in communities, we've trained up nurses and home-based care workers, we have our support groups, we go into schools, we go into workplaces. Wherever we can to start the conversation around mm. mental illness is, is really important to us. And, you know, as we've grown and as we have created more awareness, so more people are reaching out and accessing help, which is great. But we also pick up where the issues are and, and how to actually advocate for patient rights so that they can access treatment and access help. And I think when it comes around to mental health, it's so important to see mental health just as any other physical illness. A lot of the work that we do is educating people that the scary taboo topic is a real illness that needs real treatment. And there's so many different kinds, like Dr. Nolu has mentioned, and I think it's even just saying, there's mood disorders like depression and bipolar and schizophrenia, and you've also have anxiety or panic, stress, burnout, PTSD. And in a country like South Africa, where we experience all of these, and so many people can relate to it, I think it's just a really important topic to unpack and make this a common conversation in our households. So you're in a prime position, in fact, uh, because you have noticed over the years what patterns emerge. What can mm. you tell us about trends in mental illness as SADC when it comes to depression, anxiety and other common conditions? So what we know in South Africa is that the most common disorder or common mental illness, and especially here, is depression. So many people, and due to a number of different causes or reasons, it could be stress, relationship problems, loss of a loved one, chronic illness, stress at work, unemployment, um, all of these could actually contribute to someone's mental well-being. So much so that it starts to impact their functioning. And mm. um, what we are finding is that there's definitely a lot of stigma around mental illness. And that's something that we keep fighting. You know, as we create more awareness, so the stigma, people are very scared and very nervous to talk about this thing, mental illness. When we look at South Africa, we know that one in three South Africans have or will be diagnosed with a mental illness at some point in their lifetime. South Africa also has a very high suicide rate. Uh, there are 23 completed suicides every single day in the country. And for every one completed suicide, there are at least 20 other attempted suicides. So you're looking at about 460 attempted suicides every 24 hours. So a lot of people think that mental illness is something that you imagine in your head. It's not really a real illness. There's mm. cultural beliefs that it's bewitchment. But actually, it affects a lot of South Africans on a daily basis. And some of the biggest challenges that we deal with is the stigma, encouraging people to get help, encouraging people to disclose to loved ones and family members. We're seeing more and more people talking about mental health, which is very positive, And it's great that they're coming forward and accessing help. And it's making sure that they stay well. Self-help tips is also an area that we focus a lot because we're just not equipped with enough coping skills to manage illness as much as we would... On other health illnesses where you're taught that if you have diabetes, this is what you can eat, this is what you should do. So we focus a lot on managing your illness mm -hmm. and, and coping on a daily basis. Those tools come in so handy, especially when you think of the ratio patient to the professionals that are mm. available. But Dr. Nolu, what key trends have you observed as Discovery Health when it comes to mental health amongst your member population? We've seen similar trends where depression is one of the leading conditions that uh, people are admitted for and are treated for mental health and illnesses. 
bipolar is also one of those conditions. And also we are seeing some gender differences where we are seeing a high prevalence of mental illnesses in females. There's a checker that we've published on mental health, which does show, though, that even though the, high, the prevalence is higher in females, there is an increasing incidence in males as well. From some of the trends, we are seeing that the bucket that is growing is also, you know, in hospital care, which could be driven by, you know, the current benefit structure, but we are seeing a lot of people being admitted uh, for, for mental illnesses, and uh, obviously from a skin point of view, we are seeing increasing costs related to mental illness. We are talking about, you know, depression being one of those common conditions and females having a higher prevalence, followed by bipolar disorder. When we look at hospitalization, we see that with males, most of the admissions are related to rehabilitation for alcohol and drug dependence and also for schizophrenia, which is an important trend because when we then um, look at interventions, we need to understand how we support males understanding, you know, what the picture that we're seeing from the data. And, I mean, we know that substance abuse is an important um, uh, it's an important uh, condition, or I don't know if I, I'm, I must call it a condition, but it's very important because sometimes it's uh, people trying to self-medicate, you know, uh, you know, where there's an underlying mental illness. Mm -hmm. They are trying to use alcohol or some of the drugs, uh, you know, as type, some form of, you know, they are escaping the problem, but actually it can actually perpetuate the problem. But also we know that people who have got mental disease, mental health illnesses, are more prone to, um, to abuse uh, substances as well. So it can be a chicken and an egg type of situation. Yes. But I think those are important trends um, that we, we are monitoring very closely uh, because uh, whenever you need to intervene, you need to have an understanding of what your data is telling you so that you can create the necessary um, you know, processes and, and benefits that will allow you to, to, to assist members um, and, you know, uh, to deal with some of these issues. And I think also to add to that, because it's it's so important in the gender trends that we find, and especially in South Africa, where we have this culture that men don't talk about emotions. We bring up our boys to not express themselves. You know, cowboys don't cry. So what we actually see is that we have a lot more women accessing the helpline and more women being diagnosed with depression. Women talk about their problems. They follow advice. They go forward for help. Men don't talk about it until it's really serious. Mm. So what we see in South Africa Africa is that women are diagnosed more with depression, but it doesn't mean de men don't have depression, but yet their high suicide rate is yes. amongst men. They're five times more likely to commit suicide than women. Because they don't talk about it, they leave it till the very end when it becomes really serious. And we know that the biggest cause for suicide is undiagnosed or untreated depression. I think some of the other important trends that Dr. Nolo also touched on is what we're seeing with regards to teens and children. The most at-risk age group and normally the onset of mental illness is your adolescence, early adulthood, so between the ages of 17 and 23 years old. What we are seeing at SADAG is that we're getting more and more calls from teenagers who are calling in depressed, helpless, mm. hopeless, very desperate. But even in the last year, two years, we've been getting more and more calls from children. Uh, the youngest suicide in South Africa has been six years old. So when we're talking about mental health, we have to include children in primary school too. They too also suffer from anxiety and depression. And if we don't pick it up, then it can have serious yes. consequences. Yeah. So I think it does 
show a bit of a, a doom and gloom as to thinking, oh my gosh, everyone is affected. But I think it's these important conversations and just being aware that it can affect anyone, anywhere, mm. anyhow. Depression and mental illness doesn't discriminate. And I think it's important to break that down. Absolutely. It's breaking down what we previously thought because now we know so much more. But Dr. Nolu, to come back to you, what do we know about where mental health or mental illness uh, originates? I think when you when you opened up this discussion, you spoke about the various facets of mental health, which are biological, social, so environmental stuff. So I think, I mean, there is a genetic component that has been identified. We do know that, you know, people will say, you know, mental illness runs in families. So there is definitely a genetic component to it. But there are environmental and social factors that also contribute to mental health. I think Casey has has addressed the issue of teenagers and and young children, where we are seeing, you know, this increase that various things have been um, implicated for the increase that we're seeing in mental illness in kids, where we speak about uh, the the role of social media and, uh, you know, bullying at schools, all those various aspects that contribute to the unnecessary pressure and stress that could then trigger a mental illness. I think even uh, looking at adults, I mean, if you think about, you know, the pressures in the work environment, financial pressures where people are trying to make ends meet and, you know, financials are just not coming right, the high levels of unemployment in our country, high levels of trauma, you know, we speak about gender-based violence, and the implications thereof. I mean, cases spoke about post-traumatic stress disorder as one of the conditions that we can think about. So if you think about South Africa and our high trauma and violence specifically, you know, targeting women and, and children contribute to the state of our mental well-being and can therefore trigger uh, mental illnesses. I think, I mean, I don't know if Casey wants to add to that. And I think that's exactly, you know, it covers all the different contributing factors. It could be something that runs in your family. And it doesn't mean if you have an aunt or a granny or a mom who has a mental illness that you'll definitely have it. It just means that perhaps you or your children might be at a higher risk. You're also talking about the environment. So things at home, relationship problems, we know are a big trigger factor for a lot of people. You mentioned gender-based violence, Dr. Nolo, but you've also got things like stress at home, um, divorce, separation, having to move a lot can be very stressful. So life events can trigger mental illness. And when you're looking at South Africa, where we're exposed to so much trauma and yet we think we're desensitized, but you put on the news and you're hearing things, you're reading in papers, you know of a loved one who's been in a car accident or been hijacked and all of this contributes together. So it's never just one thing that could cause a mental health issue. I think also what makes it difficult is that the there isn't a blood test. So you can never go and do a health check or a test to say, yes, you definitely have depression or this is why you have depression. And I think that's one of the issues that it makes it hard to grapple and accept this diagnosis so that there is no definite blood test. Um, there's no one thing that can cause it. It's a combination of issues. And, you know, we're also linking the symptoms that you may have for any of these illnesses both have an emotional side. So how we're feeling, we might be withdrawing from others, feeling really negative and low, but you also have physical symptoms. Because again, this is a real medical illness that actually changes the chemicals in your Mm. body. So you could have more backache, neck ache, headaches, um, sleeping problems, digestive problems, eating problems, um, where you've lost your appetite completely. And 
We often forget to tie in the emotional symptoms to the physical Physical, symptoms. And which leads me on to this question about if mental illness, when it's left untreated, what sort of increased risk are we likely to see developing when it comes to other chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, things like stroke and things like Alzheimer's disease and I'm sure there are many others. So Dr. Nolu, the relationship, as Cassie has just said, often does manifest in the physical. If left untreated, what kind of conditions are we likely to see? No, definitely mental health. We know that it's predicted to be one of the leading causes of disability adjusted years, like years, if we do nothing, which is why now the focus is really on cracking mental health, which I think various uh, countries uh, globally and other, you know, organizations locally are grappling with. We know that the long-term effects of mental illness could obviously manifest in, in, in physical symptoms, like I said, uh, when I was describing the issue around costs. Uh, so people may present with physical symptoms, yes, chronic conditions. We also know that there is a relationship, a strong link between chronic illnesses and mental health. Some of it which could be that, um, you know, you are having an, an illness as a, as a starting point and then you have got a, an underlying then mental illness because of your chronic illness, but also mental illnesses themselves mm. could uh, predispose to other uh, chronic diseases, which makes it quite difficult because remember once you've got the combo where you've got a chronic disease and you've got a mental uh, illness you know complying to medication may be an issue and all that which then makes you know the whole management of the patients much more complex Mm. um, in terms of, of that. Yes and evidently then the mental health challenges complicate and worsen existing physical conditions. Cassie any thoughts on this? Yes, I think that there's so much evidence around chronic illness and mental health. We also know that living with any chronic illness, being diagnosed with cancer or HIV, that's really traumatizing. It's really heavy. So that can actually lead to depression and symptoms. And there's lots of scientific evidence that if you don't treat the mental health issue, that it actually makes your chronic illness worse. Worse, And it actually makes the medication not work. So, for example, with HIV, if you're living with HIV or AIDS and you're not treating your mental health as well, your ARVs won't be working as as optimally as they should. And therefore, you get sicker. And with getting sicker, your mood gets lower. It's a really easy way to to kind of relate to this is imagine when you've got the flu and you're really sick and you're lying in bed, you feel really down and low. Imagine that, timesing it by 10 and then timesing it by 100. And that's what it could be doing to your chronic illness is living Mm. with the depression. So I think it's really important to know that with mental health, it's got this umbrella over so many other health issues and other health conditions, but it's often not taken as seriously or thought as a a combination treatment. You know, imagine if someone went for treatment for the HIV or for cancer or even diabetes and say, well, here's also mental health support. Here are some self-help tips. Um, So that's why it's also important for people living with a, a chronic illness to also look after their own mental health at the same time. So on the whole then, considering the implications on our physical health, how good are South Africans at reaching out for help when it comes to mental illness? So what I can just say from SADAG and, and from what we're seeing in the work that we're doing is we get 
over 600 calls a day from people who are calling in feeling desperate. Across the country. Across the country. And that's probably still a drop in the ocean as to how many people don't know about us, don't know how to access help. When we look at some new research that came out last year in October 2019 about the health investment case, there's a treatment gap of one in 10 South Africans. That means nine in 10 people with a mental health issue don't access treatment. And that's that's a shocking yeah. stat and figure. Whether they've reached out, whether they know the symptoms and are willing to get help, we're, we're still unpacking a lot of that findings. But so from the calls that we're getting, we have people saying, this is what's going on. This is where I am. I'm not coping. It's starting to affect all these aspects of my life. What should I do? And people feel so helpless and hopeless. And those that have even tried to use the system, whether it be public or private, there can often be quite a few challenges. You know, you would never expect a patient with cancer to have to administer and figure out their own oncology treatment or chemo treatment. However, with the patient with depression, they have to manage their illness and psychologists, psychiatrists and support groups and meds and they're already feeling vulnerable. They're already feeling, you know, just the symptoms of depression can the sometimes... The acts are overwhelming. Getting out of bed yes. can, can be difficult. So mm. I think it's those kinds of issues that we're dealing with. But the fact that 600 people plus are contacting us every day, I think that's really hopeful. And we're just seeing more and more people calling our helplines and reaching out for help. And that's what we want to see is we want more people to say, hey, I need help. Where do I go? So how much of this is related to... The myth, if we can look at myths around uh, mental illness so that we can dispel those because the more they exist, um, the more they prevent people from reaching out and speaking up about how they're feeling. So stigma, whether it's in the community or in the workplace or our own homes or the self-stigma that we put on ourselves because we're living with a mental illness is often our biggest challenge. And that's what we really have to tackle as a society, as a family, as an individual by talking about mental health and making it more normal and not scary like in the movies where you see people in corners and straight jackets. And mm. that's not the picture. It could be someone sitting across from you at work, someone standing in the shopping queue with you, um, someone in your around your dinner table. These are real people that have real problems but can get real treatment. And I think by breaking the stigma and having these conversations starts to unpack and to really break down those barriers. It's really always heartbreaking to us when we have people who say, oh, I wish my sister knew about you before she took her life. Or I wish that I'd found out about you 10 years ago and I didn't have to struggle for so long. I think that's what motivates us is the people that have been victims of the stigma. And I think that in order to break the stigma, talking about it, creating awareness, educating people what it is, what it isn't, how to talk about mental health, you know, so often we hear people say, oh, snap out of it mm. or think positively. We wish it was that easy. But actually, you would never say snap out of it. It's just diabetes. So it's that kind of change of thinking that we're really trying to strive to encourage more people to get help. And that includes families as well. So if someone is living with depression or anxiety or bipolar, it's so important for the family and loved ones to learn as well because mm -hmm. they can be part of the treatment and part of the journey. Yeah. What I'm hearing you say is that we have to reposition it. Mm. It's seriousness and how we have to respond to it in our minds because we clearly respond differently mm. to other illnesses. Dr. Nolu, can we talk about substance abuse? Let's, if we can drill down into really its role in mental illness. So I think, I mean, if you think about substances, I mean, we looked at it, substances uh, that include alcohol. We talk about um, other drugs that uh, people take. 
I mean, there's also now the issue of uh, cannabis, which uh, we know that with uh, some of the cases that have come through from a legal point of view, you know, uh, creates another uh, area of concern, specifically when we think about mental illness. I think we do know that, for example, um, with alcohol abuse, they, it does uh, result in social deterioration where people are no longer functioning the way they are supposed to function. And we know that substance abuse uh, does, uh, you know, coexist with uh, depression. So you find that depressed people will use alcohol as a form of therapy. So instead of dealing with the issues and potentially because uh, the condition is stigmatized, uh, that people, instead of talking, then they use alcohol as a form of, of therapy. I think for me, it's important to think about uh, cannabis as one of the drugs that I remember while I was still at med school, when we used to go to the psych facilities, we used to see quite a few people who were cannabis abusers with psychotic disorders. So I think it is important to understand that certain substances can actually trigger specific mental health symptoms and actually can trigger specific illnesses in patients. So I think it is important to understand though why people end up resorting to, to substance abuse. It could be that mental illness was there at the beginning and therefore they are then prone to abusing substances or they are using this as a form of therapy, which actually does not make the situation better, but actually worsens the situation. I think it's also such an important topic to bring because this is what we're seeing in today's society and the press is we are seeing an increase of drug and alcohol abuse and cannabis abuse. And I think that has a huge role to play with regards to mental illness. You know, what causes do we drink because we're depressed or do we become depressed because we've been drinking? Mm. Um, It's almost like when you've had a really heavy night and the next day you feel really low, alcohol is a depressant. Mm. Um, So, of course, if it's changing the chemicals in your body, it would be a affecting your mental health. And I think when we're looking at serious hard drugs like cocaine and tuck and mandrax and niope and all the kinds of street mixtures that you find, of course this would have an effect on our bodies just as it could trigger any other chronic illness. It can also trigger some serious chronic illness, mental illness like psychosis, bipolar or schizophrenia. You don't have to be a long-term user of cannabis to be triggering something in your makeup that could give you bipolar or psychosis or schizophrenia. We see many young people who have tried weed for the first time while on holiday or with friends and they have their first psychotic episode and then you're managing that for the rest of your life. So we must really not underestimate the responsible use of all substances and really just making sure what we're ingesting is, is good for us and what impact it can have. You know, from the work that we do in the hospitals and experts that we speak to, there's been a huge increase in the number of psychotic, schizophrenic, bipolar episodes, patients being admitted into hospitals because of drugs and, and cannabis use. So I think it is, it's a very hot topic, yeah. um, but it's very relevant for people to make informed decisions. Absolutely. And now we clearly understand the relationship between the two. It's not harmless. Mm. There are consequences. But how might people recognize that they need help and that what they're actually feeling warrants the seeking of a healthy type of support. Mm-hmm. Earlier on, Dr. Nolu made that distinction that there are those days when you're stressed and say you have a recovery, you know, you, your recovery loop system is in place. But there are those times when that starts to be so compounded that it can actually trigger uh, or, or become a mental health episode. Mm-hmm. So how 
do we recognize that we need help? Mm. So there's lots of different causes that would make sense to why you could be feeling the way that you're doing. So you could go through a, a severe loss, a loss of a loved one, a chronic illness or, or an episode like something like that that could make you feel down and, and you feel more stressed or or depressed for a period of time. You know, losing a loved one, you would be depressed for a little while after that. I think you have to try to join the dots is when you're seeing the emotional as well as some physical symptoms over a long period of time. So it could be anything for more than two to four weeks. And the best way that we describe it to our callers on the phone, who we're not doctors, we don't know the DSM-5 and the, the screening tools, but if you imagine waking up and you're having the worst day ever, physically, emotionally, everything is going wrong around you, and you compound that by a thousand and then a thousand again, that's what living with depression feels like every single day for two to four weeks. Mm. When it starts to impact your daily functioning at home, at work, you can't concentrate, you can't sleep. I think that's when you're having to realize, hey, something's wrong. I need to speak to someone. Often when we're speaking to people on the phone, it's it's so difficult to pinpoint what triggered it, what one thing caused, what one thing happened. And often it takes a while to develop. We find that loved ones and friends pick up on symptoms before the actual person. And again, it's the whole nature of the illness. Mm. Um, some of the symptoms that you can look out for that are often very common with mental health issues is obviously physical symptoms, a change in your eating or sleeping habits, where you start to withdraw and isolate yourselves from family or friends. And you've seen a drastic change in your mood, um, which is out of sorts for you, which is normal. Right. So earlier on, you said something that made me wonder about the language we use mm. when it comes to mental health. You know, are some of the words that we use uh, part of the exacerbation of the stigma and the reason why people don't seek out help. Mm. We even said it earlier on, mm. commit suicide, mm. disease. When you break it up, it's dis-ease or uh, battling an illness or attacked by, suffer from, a victim mm. of, mm. you know. So it is the language in itself can be very disempowering. Mm. And it's something that I think we're having to also learn. You know, we're so used to saying committed suicide. And it's something that even at SADAG, even myself, is we're having to change the language in ourselves. If we can change how we talk about it, we're encouraging other people to change how are they see it. Are alternatives? They are. So things like, for example, not necessarily, I mean, there's a lot of movement around calling people with a mental illness patients because it means that they're sick. Um, whereas calling them mental health care users is, is a lot more positive and more empowering. And I think this also comes to what people feel comfortable. So ask them, how do you want me to refer to you? Right. Um, you know, we often say, oh, there's Mary, she's schizophrenic. No, she's Mary who has schizophrenia. So it's removing the patient from the illness, the person from the illness. Mm. You know, often in society, we refer to it as committing suicide. Mental illness and suicide is not a crime. You don't um, get charged. It's not your fault that you have depression. So changing it to say, instead of committed suicide, died by suicide, death mm. by suicide, a completed suicide. So there's lots that we're trying to do to change the language. And I think it's even something in the African culture. There's no word, no Zulu word for depression. So how can you start talking about it and for people to believing it and taking it seriously if there's no word that we can grasp and understand. And I think having conversations to describe what depression is in Zulu or Kosa or Suta, and I think it's 
that's really important in the African context for us to start making it a, a, as important as mental health should be. So, Dr. Nolu, this question of the use of language, has it had any kind of consideration within discovery? So, I think, I mean, we also, like uh, Katie was saying, we learn every day to, to start using specific language that does not almost stigmatize patients more. I think for me, it's less of what Discovery uses as a, as a company rather than I would also just urge, you know, people who are, you know, the general public around, you know, creating awareness around how they interact with people living with a mental illness. You know, how we call people schizo, that crazy one. Mm. If, I mean, I've seen it in some close circles where you find that even when a person is well, because they've got a mental illness, they are treated in a certain way. Mm. Forget forget what the language that is being used, but also the way that they are treated. It's like, mm. you, you are crazy. We will not, you know, maybe you forgot your treatment. People say that, joking, oh, you forgot to take your treatment today. So it's, it's all those small things that, um, you know, you may be saying it's not even aware that there is somebody who has got a mental illness. But as a company, yes, we've got a responsibility for members, but also when we think about us as, you know, uh, members of the plus society, how do we take whatever the messaging and also the learnings that we take around how we need to be, you know, what is the language that we should be using to make sure that we stigmatize mental health and allow people to be able to come out and seek help. I think from a point of view, we are trying our level best to make sure that we stigmatize um, our members, but I think there's a broader responsibility as members of the society to say that certain jokes that we make may not necessarily be referring to a specific patient, but there might be someone in our midst who will take that joke and think, if I were to come and tell these people that I'm living with a mental illness, if they're talking amongst themselves, if I come out, how would they then treat me? So it's just being aware of some of the jokes that we make in environments where we could be with people who are struggling and battling to cope with uh, with mental mm-hmm. illness. Right. So, Cassie, Sadak actually runs uh, Discovery's after-hours call center for employee for the employee assistance program. Um, what can you tell us about the trends that you're seeing? Because you also work with the doctors involved. So what we do at SADAG, some of the projects where we've partnered up with Discovery Health, and this is also preventative work and, and really progressive in, in finding the problem and trying to, to provide some solutions. One of the helplines that we run with Discovery is our Discovery Health Young Doctors and Medical Students Helpline. It's a 24-hour helpline that really looks at providing support to our carers and our doctors and the people on the ground. We saw a huge increase in the number of calls and people reaching out who were doctors or medical students saying, I'm not coping, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm. We saw so many cases of suicide amongst this group and it was very concerning for us and through the helpline we're able to reach out throughout the day throughout the evening seven days a week so when a doctor's finished around um, it's their 36 hour shift and it's two o'clock in the morning and they've had a really rough day and now they can speak to someone and say hey, I'm, I'm actually not coping I've lost patience today I'm feeling really overwhelmed yeah it offers them support too because no one ever thinks that a doctor could be affected by what they do. And I think there's often the stigma that our doctors are hard and they don't have good bedside manner and um, they don't care. 
But our doctors care so much and we forget to care about them too. You know, superheroes need help too. Mm. And this is why this is such an important project for us is that we also have to make sure that this generation of doctors are also mentally well, that they can look after themselves and then look after their patients. Um, and it's been running now for nearly a year and a half, and we get hundreds of calls every month from medical students who are not coping, are suffering, but also want to reach out and, and get help. And I think that for us is so positive, and we're hoping that it grows and, and we can reach and help more people. Again, this is our next generation of doctors. So we yes. want to make sure if they've studied and they've just started that we actually keep them um, in that system to help more people as, as long as possible. So Dr. Nolu, as a company, you are actually one of the leaders when it comes to a really comprehensive employee assistance program. When it comes to mental health, what are the provisions that uh, you've managed to make for uh, those that use the service? When we look at our employee assistance program, we look at offering support along four pillars. So looking at the emotional well-being, financial well-being, and the legal support. And then when we spoke about some of the issues that we feel contribute to mental illness, so when we spoke about financial challenges, you know, legal support could be uh, a person going through a divorce. And we spoke about physical uh, well-being as well as a contributor to the overall um, you know, mental uh, well-being. So um, that is our approach that is more holistic. And we start by obviously risk stratifying our patients so that we can tailor our interventions uh, appropriately so that we can make sure that patients are, in fact, let me not say patients because it's not people who are necessarily um, living with illness, but, you know, people who may be at risk of developing mental illness could then be uh, supported through this process. So I think for from our side, we really try because we do understand that there is a gap um, in terms of support. And what we have launched in 2020 is a mental well-being assessment, which is, you know, um, driven through our vitality uh, business. And this is really the risk assessment tool that says, firstly, let's assess your risk. Let's make sure that we understand uh, what um, interventions are required. And if you are presenting with mental illness, then we, we, we transition you benefits that are available within Discovery Health Medical Scheme and all our other, you know, administered uh, scheme benefits. So I think really when I think about that journey, it really starts with the assessment itself and, you know, then you triage your patients depending on what the outcome is to make sure that they access the necessary interventions that will improve their outcomes. And there are certain patients who, certain people, I keep saying patients, there are certain mm-hmm. people who may actually be low risk. And for those, you need to ensure that there are, you know, interventions that are there to help them to maintain their mental well-being. So in terms of resilience building and making sure that people, you know, have got other news and, you know, tools that they can use to almost report symptoms. You know, if I'm feeling sad today, I can report that. But once I, you know, through those tools, there is an identified pattern that looks worrisome, then there is an intervention that can be triggered based on that uh, support. So that's really the uh, overview of what that offering looks like, which obviously has been in place now. And we've got uh, various corporates that have brought that. And we are seeing that out of the four pillars that I've mentioned, the emotional well-being pillar is the one that is most utilized 
Mm. Um, but we do understand also the links between the various uh, pillars that are mentioned in terms of a healthy, um, you know, mental well-being approach. Right. I think when you're looking at mental wellness in the workplace, because again, mental health doesn't have working hours. So it's with you from when you wake up to when you get home. And our workplaces, we know in South Africa, are more stressful. They're more demanding. There's less people. There's more this pressure of working harder, working more to really keep our jobs. And I think when we're not addressing mental health or mental wealth in the workplace, it has serious consequences to any company. We know that it has a direct reflection on the bottom line. So we did a study a couple of years ago um, that saw that one in four employees have actually been diagnosed with depression, which is quite a high number within a corporate company. And that the average employee with depression took about 18 days off a year because of their depression. So that affects your rate of productivity and absenteeism, and it brought into this presenteeism. So I'm at work, but I'm not actually being able to work at my optimal versus absenteeism where I'm not at work. And I think that through the Discovery Healthy Company is that you've got these four pillars that really look at your emotional well-being, physical, again, teaching you self-help tip and working on your body, what you're eating nutrition, financial, we know that it has a huge impact on, on to how we function, uh, even just financial literacy and budgeting and any legal aspects. And I think that's a really great package to ensure that you're providing all of the support. When we're looking at doing preventative work, because often what we're doing in the space of mental health is treatment, um, reacting to people, making sure that they're managing and, and getting help. We want to prevent people from either getting worse or exacerbating their mental illness or their mental health, but we want to do prevention and promotion, which is what Vitality, through their new assessments, are hoping to help people knowing how to rate, are your symptoms getting worse? Should you be getting help? What kind of help is available? And I think this is such an important tool is that we often think that with mental illness, it's just medication. And it's not. It could be medication from a a GP or psychiatrist if your mental health is impacting your daily functioning so much that you're battling to get out of bed. You can't concentrate. It's impacting the way you're functioning every day over a long period of time. But then you've also got things where you could be talking to a therapist, a psychologist, a counselor, social worker. You could be joining a support group, connecting with other people who have been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and then self-help, becoming an expert in your illness. And I think that holistic approach is really the most successful model to help anyone living with a mental health condition um, to make sure that they can live optimally. Yes. Now, considering how important the workplace is and the organization, in fact, we did an entire series on mental wellness in the workplace. It was really eye-opening mm-hmm. and impressive to see what uh, organizations like Discovery are doing to support their employees, but also to get a, a better grasp of the responsibility uh, of organizations and the role that they can play in the lives of their employees. Now, having said that, Dr. Nolu, studies show that millennials are particularly at risk of burnout. How can we support this generation of employees uh, who will be part of the workforce and drive productivity for their companies and the country as a whole for, for years to come? How does Discovery actually address burnout amongst its staff? I think it's, it remains a challenge. And I think it really also uh, challenges employers, including a discovery, to think differently around, you know, how we structure work. I think we have uh, the specific way of working that uh, maybe worked in the past, 
But uh, I think uh, these days we need to think differently around how we structure our work and also how we create um, environments that actually uh, are conducive to working differently and also for our, our mental well-being. So Discovery, when we moved into our new building, we really uh, adopted the agile approach for workspaces and also just the way of working, which means that people don't necessarily have to come to the office. Because I think if you think about some of the stresses that contribute to our mental well-being, it's being stuck in traffic. You know, you are there, by the time you get to the office, you're already frustrated and, you know, it it takes away uh, from the time that you could be in the office and being productive. And now you come and your day is packed, it's meeting from meeting. So it's really about thinking differently about how we structure our work environment to actually cater for a different way of of working that is not um, about being in front of a desk and clocking into an office space where you can have flexibility to work from home or from any other environment where you can still be productive. And maybe, you you know, you are in the outdoors, you are, you know, exposed to beautiful music and stuff like that that could create uh, an environment that is not necessarily as clinical as the, the office space, but still allow people to be productive. And I think it's a challenge for all employers to start thinking differently about the newer generation and how they want and how they view the work uh, space and also how they would like to be treated and also how we can create those environments that actually speak to how, you know, they think and also how they would like their mental well-being to be to be taken care of. I mean, I don't know, Casey has got maybe other ideas, but I think there is a big challenge right now on most of the employer groups to actually think differently about this group of and I think it's also so great that as a company, as Discovery, you, you're actually practicing what you're preaching, where you're changing it from the inside out. Um, you know, changing the structure for your own employees, I think, is, is you know, reaping the benefits. And when we look at the fact that the World Health Organization has actually recognized burnout as a real condition, I think it's just showing that it's it's a sign of the times. Um, and as millennials, and, and we're again seeing this in, in our young people every single day, is this new buzzword of work-life balance. And how do we do that? And how do we change our lifestyles? We're finding people burning out um, mm. in their early 20s, yes. um, even in high school, which is absurd. Um, you know, you never hear of that. And I think, again, it just shows you our society. It's everything now, quicker, faster, at our fingertips. Mm. And I think that's what we have to look at is, hang on, how do we actually look after ourselves? Are we doing well? Are we having good connections? Are we looking after our bodies? We're our biggest asset. And if we don't look after our bodies... Where is it going to leave us? Absolutely. Just in closing, I'd really love to get your closing comments, just a central message that you'd want to put out there for people to understand when it comes to mental illness. Dr. Nolu, I'll start with you. You know, I think for me in closing, I'm going to use the Mental Health Action Plan and just the vision for us in terms of mental health. And I think it is as follows where we're saying we, we envision a world in which mental health is valued, it is promoted, and this is protected. Mm. And where mental disorders are prevented and the persons affected by these disorders are able to exercise the full range of human rights and are able to access high-quality, culturally appropriate health and social care in a timely way to promote recovery, all in order to attain the highest possible level of health and participate fully in society and at work. 
free from stigmatization and discrimination. I think that for me, whenever I read that statement and that vision, it encompasses everything that we should be striving for mm. in terms of creating you know, a very meaningful um, environment and society where we really look after people uh, holistically. I think it's so important to put the message out that there is no health without mental health. And if we start to take it seriously, we can really start addressing this among so many people. My take-home message for, for anyone, whether they're living with a mental health issue or they know of someone or they're just learning more about mental health to look after themselves, is that, you know, that there's always help and there's always hope. When we're feeling like you can't go on or you don't know what to do, please have that message of hope. And I think just as human beings is just be kind. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. You have no idea what other people are struggling or living with on a daily basis. And I think if we're just kinder to each other and to ourselves, it can make a huge difference. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for the incredible work that you do and for joining us for this conversation. Thank you very much for helping us create more awareness. So thank you. Thank you. Dr. Nolu, it's been a pleasure again. Thank you so much, Azra. Thank you so much. And thank you, Casey, as well. Thanks, Nolu. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you will definitely enjoy our episode on maintaining your mental well-being. Listen out to hear our experts share top tips about those simple lifestyle habits that keep your mental health in check for life. We also speak to two very brave women, Letitia Duplessis, about what it takes to maintain mental well-being in the face of mental illness, and to Letsiko Zulu about how her healthy lifestyle kept her going after she lost the love of her life, husband Gugu, on Kilimanjaro three years ago. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Healthier, brought to you by Discovery Health. Join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Discover Healthier and tag at Discovery underscore SA. You can subscribe to our podcast channel, Discovery South Africa, on your favorite podcast app or visit discovery.co.za to listen to our shows. 